the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Sweetwater Fishing Guide Evan Padua has a hooked-on fishing report that highlights smallmouth bass in the Upper Delaware River. Stephanie Phillips visits the Sullivan County Government Center in Monticello, New York, and speaks with Heather Brown from the Office of Sustainable Energy. In her segment Now You Know, we'll hear their conversation about climate-smart community programs. I'll share with you a sweet taste of summer layered in red, white, and blue. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. Massachusetts State Police say a standoff with a group of heavily armed men is over, and nine people are now in custody. Officials say the group was refueling two vehicles on the side of Interstate 95 early this morning outside Boston, and when a trooper approached, they fled into nearby woods. State Police Colonel Christopher Mason. They were uh, clad in uh, what I would describe as tactical or military-style uniforms, uh, BDUs, uh, tactical vests, body-worn cameras. Uh, some had slung long rifles. Some had uh, uh, sidearms. Police say the men claim to be from a group that, quote, doesn't recognize our laws and were heading to Maine for training. A condo building in Florida's North Miami Beach has been evacuated over serious safety concerns highlighted in an engineering report. It's one of several structures being investigated following the partial collapse of Champlain Tower South in Surfside, where 22 people are confirmed dead. NPR's Greg Allen reports the mayor of Miami-Dade County has signed a demolition order for what remains of the building. Search and rescue operations have been restricted to just part of the side of the collapse because of concerns the standing building was becoming unstable. Because of that, Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava signed an emergency order authorizing the demolition of the building. She said she knew how difficult the news was for residents who escaped but who lost their homes and belongings. The building poses a threat to public health and safety and bringing it down as quickly as possible is critical to protect our community. Structural engineers are studying the safest way to bring the building down and say it will be weeks before a demolition plan is in place. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Record-breaking heat in the Canadian province of British Columbia has sparked more than a 100 fires and burned an entire community in the past week. Dan Karpinchuk reports the Canadian military is now on standby to evacuate communities and help battle the blazes. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met with his incident response group after talks with community leaders and the Premier of British Columbia. Trudeau has pledged military help. Aircraft and 350 personnel are ready to fight fires and evacuate towns. An operations centre is being set up in Edmonton where the military will be able to provide logistical support. More than a 1,000 people have been forced to leave their homes ahead of the fires, and hundreds more have been placed on alert as the province braces for more fires to break out over the weekend. Officials say at least 150 fires are active 
active in British Columbia, nearly 90 of them sparked in the past few days. Meanwhile, the heat wave is spreading, with warnings issued for Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and parts of the Northwest Territories. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Stephanie Phillips and Heather Brown from the Sullivan County Government Center in Monticello, New York, chat about climate smart community programs. In the segment, Now You Know, we'll top off our show with a sweet taste of summer, layered in red, white, and blue. But first, Sweetwater Fishing Guide Evan Padua has a hooked-on fishing report that highlights smallmouth bass in the Upper Delaware River. Thank you for joining us for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. WJFF and Farm and Country, this is Evan Padua bringing you Hooked on Fishing. The summer on the Upper Delaware River is in full swing. There has been relatively stable warm water temperatures and limited precipitation. This leads to consistent flows day by day, and warm water fish are very active. I am mostly talking about the smallmouth bass on the upper Delaware. The smallmouth bass is very heavily populated in this river. It is arguably the most prevalent fish, and a very fun game species to target. Smallmouth bass have a very slow growth rate. This means that responsible angling is very important to sustain a healthy population and bigger fish. It is a good practice to catch and release smallmouth bass. Their food quality is less than most other commonly consumed fish, such as sunfish, walleye, catfish, and others. When fishing for smallmouth bass on our upper Delaware River, I suggest using barbless hooks and big enough hooks that the fish cannot and will not swallow and then become gut hooked. While catch and release fishing for bass, it is important to set the hook into the fish's mouth as soon as you feel them hit. Otherwise, they will begin to swallow the bait and likely die with the hook in their gut. A 12-inch bass can take about 5 years to get to that size. So catch and release fishing for bass will help the upper Delaware fishery become better and more reliable than it already is. Fishing for bass is often better as water temperatures warm up throughout the day. Try surface lures or flies for these fish and you can watch them strike. Again, I highly recommend pinching your barbs down on your hooks for easier removal. Get outside and wet a line. 
and be safe on this 4th of July weekend. Best wishes and tight lines to all the fishermen and women out there. For WJFF, Farm and Country, and Hooked on Fishing, this has been Evan Padua, casting off. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Today I'm at the Sullivan County Government Center in Monticello. I'll be speaking with Heather Brown, Sustainability Coordinator in the Office of Sustainable Energy. Heather's going to tell us about the Climate Smart Community Programs. Heather, what is your background? Well, I am born and raised in Sullivan County, uh, the town of Bethel. And my background, I went to school, earned my degree from the University of Binghamton with a Bachelor's of Science in Biology. While I was at Binghamton, I focused particularly on freshwater wetlands and ecology. And I've been with the county since 2004, starting in their planning department and now ending up here in the Office of Sustainable Energy. I see that Sullivan County is designated as a climate-smart community. What did it have to do to get that designation? That was a very hard-fought and well-deserved certification. So Sullivan County in 2010 took the Climate Smart Communities Pledge. In 2017, we managed to piece together enough points to earn our bronze certification as a Climate Smart Community. A Climate Smart Community is a community that takes the pledge and follows a certain blueprint almost that's provided by the state through the Climate Smart Communities Program that ranges in projects and actions from energy efficiency to renewable energies to resiliency measures to education outreach and even economy and land use as well as education outreach. One of the biggest things from the beginning though is that they really focus in on your planning and your greenhouse gas emissions, of course, so you have an actual starting point and you're able to track your progress as you move through the process. As a, for instance, in addition to the greenhouse gas emissions inventory, we also had to complete a climate action plan that was actually completed in 2014 and will be updated in the next, I would say, 12 months or so because we've actually exceeded many of the goals that we established in there. Is the greenhouse gas emissions criterion just applied to government agencies or does it have also to do with the citizens who live here? Right now our greenhouse gas emissions inventory is specifically for county operations. So our county fleet, our county buildings, any other things that the county emits that would contribute to our greenhouse gas emissions uh, footprint. We do plan, and I believe that this will be something that the state will actually be supporting in the next couple of years, a community-wide greenhouse gas emissions survey it's not going to be necessarily as comprehensive. It's based much more on 
your population demographics, the types of housing that you have, and it takes a much larger look. We will not be going door to door and knocking on people's doors and asking them to give us all of their utility bills for evaluation. It's really taken from a very high level and getting more of an estimate of what you're actually emitting as a community. Whereas for the operational greenhouse gas emissions inventory, we literally go through 12 months of electric bills and water bills and fuel bills and gasoline bills and make sure that we're actually taking into consideration everything pretty accurately. So the community is a much more broad exercise and the county-specific operational greenhouse gas emissions inventory is much more specific to what we're actually purchasing and using. So does that mean if we come in here on a hot summer day, the air conditioner is not going to be turned down to 68 degrees? No, the air conditioner will probably not be turned down to 68 degrees, but that's not to say that we sacrifice comfort for the sake of saving our greenhouse gas emissions. We actually have gone through several large projects in the last few years to update our buildings, to update the mechanics of our buildings, such as HVAC units and boilers and lighting and building controls to make those systems much more efficient. That starts with an energy audit. If anyone's ever had an energy audit done on their house, Doing one on the 84,000 square foot uh, government center is a little bit larger than that and certainly a little bit more expensive, but we actually have seen great results from that. And we're hoping that the benefits not don't, don't only just translate into the environment, but it certainly has translated from a financial point of view and it has hopefully translated to a comfort level point of view for our employees. I'm just trying to bring it down to the level of what are you actually doing besides auditing? What do the government buildings actually have to institute in terms of practices and equipment? The most important thing is to make sure that we're properly maintaining the buildings. A well-maintained building is going to run much more efficiently than a building that is left to just go on its own. And we're really fortunate to have a fantastic Department of Public Works. We work very closely with them on a regular basis, particularly the commissioner and the buildings department. They've been wonderful partners in this process. So the energy audits are kind of the first step beyond the energy audits, you actually have to implement the items that are recommended through those energy audits. So replacing our dated HVAC equipment, replacing our dated boilers, building systems that have come to the end of their life, and certainly in the last 20 to 25 years since the last time they were installed, technology has come such a far way that the the modern systems are just much more energy efficient than anything that we used to install, say, back in the, you know, the 90s and early 2000s. Going through those processes and actually implementing the measures that come out of those energy audits has been a really great win for the county. When we installed all of the new building equipment in this particular building, the government center, we actually achieved a 33% decrease in energy use intensity. And that's a really important measure that we talk about because the price of electricity is going to fluctuate, it's going to go up and down. But if you can measure the actual energy use intensity of your building, that's where you know that you're getting that built-in environmental benefit, and you're also getting those built-in savings no matter what the cost of the energy goes up to. There's always going to be that baseline of savings built in. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. That was a big win. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, are the schools part of the government audits, or do they have to handle their own energy consumption? 
The schools would handle their own energy consumption. I do know that several of the school districts have taken steps to make their buildings more efficient as they've gone through their own budget processes and their own capital improvements on their schools, but that would be handled separately from the government. We'd be more than willing to talk to them and give them any kind of advice and information, but that's something that they certainly handle on their own. What kind of metrics do you use to measure that 30% impact? It can get a little complicated, but we do have a program that we use that's called Energy Portfolio Manager. We refer to that as our benchmarking database. Building benchmarking is extremely important because you actually establish what your baseline usage of energy is, and then you monitor what your future use of energy is. So you're actually able to track the progress that you're making in reaching your sustainability goals. The things that go into that database are things like how much electricity did we use? And what does that electricity usage look like if we adjust for the weather, heating degree days and cooling degree days? It looks at things like our propane usage, our fuel oil usage. It looks at the entire building's energy usage across the entire scale. And then it's able to actually convert all of that information into BTUs as just a baseline common unit of measure. And we can actually track our progress. So we can say in this year, we used this number of BTUs. In the following year, we used this number of BTUs. And through the last five years, we've seen a significant decrease in the amount of energy used by our buildings on a square foot basis, per square foot basis, which is very important because we did just open the new county jail. It's a 154,000 square foot facility. You add that much floor space to your inventory and certainly you're going to see an uptick in energy use. But on a per square foot basis, the energy use intensity has significantly dropped. Like I said, in this building alone, it was a 30 decrease. Well, it's nice to hear that you're really using objective parameters for this. It's very important. You can't say to people that you're being successful if you are just making a guess and pulling that kind of out of thin air. We want to make sure that we actually have the hard data that we can back it up and say, yes, this was successful, and this is how much we saved the county, and this is how much we saved them financially, and this is how many metric tons of carbon emissions were actually avoided as a result of this. So it's very nice to have that hard data. We also do education outreach. So I've spoken at the Leadership Sullivan programs. I've spoken to schools. I've spoken to town boards. I've spoken at various places across the county, kind of getting the information out there that these are programs that are available. Certainly with a little bit more time, we could certainly do more. There's never enough time to get everything done in a day that you want. But really, our goal is to focus on establishing sound policy, working with our fellow department heads, and also to work with the county legislature to implement the sustainable policies that have been passed by the legislature over the years. We also really believe in leadership by example. So when we go out there and we do a big energy efficiency project, like the one that we did here at the government center, which we did in partnership with the New York Power Authority, we really tried to just advertise that this is what we did and this is how much our energy bills dropped And while this is a large building, you can do this too in your house, and this is a way to get there. And there is a resource guide that's available on our website as well that people can access so they can understand all the various programs that are available. What do you see as the future here in the county? Do you think we're all going to go solar? I wouldn't say we're all going to go solar, but I do think that people are becoming much more aware of where their energy comes from. You know, when you walk into your house and you turn on the water, 
you know that the water and the plumbing is working because water comes out of the faucet. And if there's a leak, the water pressure probably isn't that great, or you have a really big stain in your ceiling where it's leaking from the bathroom upstairs or something like that. You know, electricity is something that we haven't really thought about as much in the past. It's a complicated utility bill that not everyone scrutinizes because it's a little bit too complicated. And as long as you walk into the house, you turn on the light switch and the lights come on, you're pretty happy. And you don't think about the efficiency and the loss of the energy and whatnot. I think in the last five to 10 years, you see people becoming much more aware that, hey, I may be wasting energy here. Hey, where does my electricity come from? So I think that as the consumer becomes a little more educated and interested in where their electricity is coming from and how efficient they're actually being, I think we're going to see a very big push from people to just be more careful and more aware of their choices. And I certainly hope that it's not all solar. You know, I always tell people we need more than just solar. There's wind, there's water, there's geothermal, which our local community college actually has a geothermal system installed and it's great and keeps their buildings nice and hot and cold as needed throughout all seasons. There's many renewable resources out there and I don't think that any single one of them will prove to be the silver bullet. It's really a matter of having a diversified energy portfolio that is working together and coordinated that will get us to where we need to be. We do become very aware of the power usage when the electricity goes out, which it does frequently around here, and particularly if you have to run a generator and keep filling it up with propane, then you've got to know how much power you're using. Absolutely. And we talk about resiliency. Grid resiliency is a really major component of getting to our uh, sustainability goals. I know that our local utility, uh, NYSEG, has recently gone through their rate case for the Public Service Commission. There's been commitments to investing pretty significantly into our local grid infrastructure in Sullivan County. And we're really hoping to see those investments continue because without having a very strong, resilient grid, what we do is is going to be very difficult to deliver if there's no delivery system available. So we do try to make sure that those investments are supported as well. Unfortunately, given that NYSEG delivers the electricity for everything and every means of power generation, what this means is when the power goes out, it'll still go out, even if you signed up for solar. That is correct. And one of the biggest misconceptions that we have is people say, well, I have solar panels on my roof, so I'm okay, so my power won't go out. That's not necessarily the case unless you are actually backing up that solar generation with some batteries, like if maybe if you have a power wall or something in your house that you're actually storing the electricity while it's being generated. But it's really important to know that solar technology is still using grid infrastructure. It's still electricity and still being delivered on the same lines as energy that would be generated from fossil fuel-based generators. So yeah, when the power goes out and and the electric lines go down, the power goes out. It doesn't really matter what the source of that electricity is. It's still not coming. <laughs> That's a sad story. It is. It is. I live in Smallwood, so I certainly have endured those days or weeks without power at a time. And by the time that you get to the end of day one, really, but maybe day two, you really start to get a little itchy without having the power in the house. You become very aware at those times of exactly how much we rely on having electricity flowing to our homes and businesses. <laughs> Are there any initiatives going forward to for these other types of energy that you mentioned, water and wind? Well, hydro is one, certainly. 
that we have taken a big interest in. Upstate New York is really, really lucky to have just a, a, a large number of hydro resources. Even the little dam out of Lake Jeff, it has its own history in the community. And we're very much interested in identifying hydro for usage in county operations. It's one of those things that when you have a, a hydro dam, you probably won't have any new ones that are being constructed because of the environmental sensitivities with fish populations and other water creatures and whatnot that we have to be cognizant of. But certainly the dams that are in existence and operating can be retooled and they can be upgraded and they can be made more efficient at actually generating the electricity using the same waters that flow through on a regular basis. So I think that hydro is an area that we would really love to get more involved in and we're hoping to have some pretty good news for that on the imminent horizon coming soon. So absolutely. I think that there was greater use of water power in the past. I know that there are the remnants of a dam that must have run a mill on Little Falls Road in Fallsburg, and there are probably many other locations like that. The rivers and certainly the water in Sullivan County, when you see where our communities are settled, the rivers played a huge role in why our communities are settled where they are. Every community had a mill of some sort. Every community had to have grain milled somewhere. They had other things that had to be milled. The local mill was a very important piece of the fabric of the community. And beyond that, the dam itself for these mills or even for the uh, the, the power generating plants Usually there's a lake or a reservoir that's backed up behind those dams and people use those for swimming and fishing and boating and all kinds of other things. These dams become a part of our communities and they become a a focal point of the community. And the idea of losing those pieces is, is really sad. So if there's ways that we can support an industry that will maintain that historically significant piece of New York and our, our power generation and whatnot, I mean, we're, we're certainly looking for opportunities to, to get involved there. Hydro goes way back in New York State. You look to the west and you see Niagara Falls and you consider how much water is flowing and how much power is generated there. It's one of the reasons that New York State historically had a pretty green energy portfolio just from the energy generated from those falls. And there's lots of little dams across upstate New York and they could use support right now. If we can do that, then we'll look for those opportunities. So now you know some of the things that the Office of Sustainable Energy does to keep Sullivan County green. I want to thank Heather Brown, Sustainability Coordinator in the Office of Sustainable Energy, for telling us about what her department does. If you have some ideas for future Now You Know segments, email me, stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. This is your host, Rosie Starr. I would like to share my treat with you inspired by the 4th of July. I always feel so grateful to live in a community surrounded by farmland that produces a bounty of goodness. Recently, I was gifted a vintage parfait glass from our dear friend, Joanne, who lives in Lackawaxen, Pennsylvania. It brought to mind a sweet summer memory of vanilla ice cream with assorted toppings. So, off I go to local markets and shops to score 
fresh strawberries from Good Fine Farms and Heller's Farm Market stands, blueberries from Maynard Farm, and soon to be available at the Muller's Farm stand in Beach Lake, Pennsylvania. Layer that with some Chobani yogurt from Pete's Market and vanilla ice cream from Beeline, sold at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. Three cheers for those layers of red, white, and blue sourced locally from both sides of the river. Yummy! We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by volunteers Evan Padua and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Heather Brown, from the Office of Energy Sustainability at the Government Center in Monticello, New York, speaking about climate-smart community programs. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on WJFF Radio Catskill. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org <laughs> Poetry set to music. Next time on The Wagaloo Monkeys with me, Graham Rice, here on WJFF Radio Catskill, we continue to showcase poetry set to music, and this week, 